You may be seated. Amen. Well, good evening, church family. Good to see you this evening. And uh, before I get started on anything, I do want to say thank you for your hospitality. Uh, wonderful afternoon at your pastor and his dear wife's home, along with, of course, Drew and Nate and Luke and uh, the pudgy little dog that's always looking for the dinner scraps there. Is that Sam? Oh, yeah. yeah, Sam. But uh, thank you. Wonderful meal and wonderful fellowship, and we appreciate it. And all the thoughtfulness that's gone into this trip and getting us in and lodging us and just everything, and just we appreciate so much your kindness toward us. I do want to mention my wife, and uh, we'll do this from time to time. She has a couple of ladies' books out there. Uh, it's hard to find good uh, books today, and these have been incredibly well-received. One is entitled, Becoming a Glorious Daughter of the King, and the other is Just a Closer Walk with Thee. And they have just really struck a chord. Uh, I think we're in probably our 19th printing on this one. Uh, the newer one, uh, just following right in suit. And then a third one I've just edited, we hope to have out by January 1st. But it's met a great need that's in uh, hearts and homes in the ladies today. You know, a mother of six, seven if you count me as one of the children, and then a grandmother of 14, gritty and gracious. And as her editor, I can say there's a lot of great stuff here for ladies, very challenging. And I know this, every time I edit one of her books, I come under conviction as I'm editing it. It just really speaks to hearts. And so if you want, you want to get one, just see her. She's in charge of that. And then, uh, meanwhile, take your Bibles. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. I think everybody has a handout, Galatians 5. I want to look at a single verse tonight. We started a series of thoughts, Galatians 5. Uh, is where we'll be tonight. Out of First Peter, First and Second Peter, we're going to return to that series tomorrow night. This one touches First Peter. Uh, it's not specifically from that epistle, those two epistles. But I would encourage you to come back. I'm just excited about every single message in the series that I have while I'm with you this week, and it will touch every area of your life. And some of the handouts, I think Tuesday nights, you'll probably slide in your Bible and keep it there for the rest of your life because it'll be so helpful as we look at something out of 1 and 2 Peter that every one of us experiences practically every day in our Christian life. In Galatians 5, look with me, verse number 13, a single verse says, For brethren, I'll pause for a moment and look up. That single word, brethren, tells us who this is directed to. This is very specifically not to the lost, but to the saved, those of us that know Christ as Savior. He says, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Notice he puts the context here. He counterbalances that freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But notice instead, by love, serve one another. I want to look at three words tonight that interrelate, they work together. One of them springs right from this text. I want to consider legalism, liberty, and lawlessness. Legalism, liberty, and and lawlessness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight again for the opportunity to be in your house and with your people. I pray your blessing on this time. Speak to our hearts. Help us 
Father, to have open ears and open hearts, and may your word as it goes forth, may it, uh, Lord, not simply be heard, but Father, may we yield and allow your spirit to deal with us, and may we become doers of thy word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Legalism, liberty, and lawlessness. By a show of hands, I want to ask this question. How many of you recently or maybe in the last year have heard somebody say something like this? Well, that's just being legalistic. All right, just slip your hand up. All right, or that's just legalism. All right? Let me tell you, I'm hearing that a lot. And you need to understand when somebody says that, that's not intended to be a compliment. That's intended to be a put down. It's a snarky little thing that maybe they don't like a way you live or what you do. And so it's intended not to be a compliment. But, you know, I hear it all the time. And so now I have a question when I hear it. I say, well, what is legalism? Do you know they honestly don't know? It's just a little term they throw around out there. And I'm seeing it more and more in Christianity, even in our circles. So let's define this as we begin our study. What is legalism? Well, let me give you the broad spectrum and then boil it down. I looked in Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary, great place to start. Words do change over the years. So what is legalism? Well, he says this, it's excessive adherence to law or formula, number one. Number two, it's dependence on moral law rather than on personal religious faith. He said this, stress obedience apart from faith and you produce legalism. Now, Thomas R. Schreiner said it this way, a legalist believes that their good works and obedience to God affects their salvation. They attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. So if you you were just to boil it down, what is legalism defined? I wrote it here. It's resting upon works for salvation. Or could I say this? It's resting upon your works to complete your salvation. All right? Either way, there's a great weight based on your works rather than what on Jesus Christ did for you to justify you before God. Could I just say this? The day you got saved, you cannot add to Christ's righteousness to become more acceptable to God. Amen? Amen? And yet a true purist legalist thinks they can. So... If legalism defined in its simplest sense means resting upon works for salvation, could I say this? The Bible is very clear to teach salvation does not come by your works. Amen? Somebody list a verse. Somebody just say, there's a verse. Is there, you know a verse out there in the Bible? New Testament says you're not saved by works. Somebody just slip your hand up real quickly. All right. Yes, sir. Somebody real quick. What, how's it go? Okay, close. We're going to catch it. We're going to help you on that, all right? Somebody else, what's a verse? Ah, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Amen? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How How about Titus 3, 5? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Look at further. Look with me in Galatians 2. Just scroll back a couple pages here in your Bible in Galatians chapter 2. And notice this verse 
in verse number 16. Legalism in its purest sense is resting upon works for salvation or resting upon works to complete your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. Notice in Galatians 2.16, the Bible says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Boy, you drill down on that verse and you know, look closely. It seems to indicate it's not even your faith that impresses God. It's not your works that impress God. It's actually the faith of Jesus Christ that impresses God. But the day you and I feebly step across and rest all of our weight on what he did for us 2,000 years years ago. His works, his righteousness, his sinlessness, his sacrifice, his faith, all of that is your and my justification and transport to heaven. And notice at the end of that chapter, verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You know, I love to say it this way. If you're looking for something to do to impress God, to bribe your way into his heaven, to make yourself good enough to get there, you're 2,000 years too late. It already got done. You need to look and live. Amen? Look with me in, in Romans chapter 3. Fascinating how the Spirit of God shows us this. But this first little word we're looking at, legalism, In its purest sense, it's resting upon your works for salvation. The Bible does not teach that. Look in Romans 3 and verse 28. It says this, Therefore we conclude. Look up for just a moment. Don't you love conclusions? I mean, when a politician is given a speech and he says, In conclusion, well, now I'm going to listen. You know, it's just, it's drawing it to a close. And a conclusion always takes all of this stuff and just gives you a simple summary. He says, therefore, we conclude what? That a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Amen? My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. Yeah. Legalism defined resting upon works for salvation. Scripture does not support that. But notice point B. Because point B begins this, legalism misapplied. In many ways today, that's what's happening to this word. It's being misapplied. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 or chapter 6. Look with me. Legalism misapplied. In point B, you can write this down. Separation is not legalism. Just write that word in point B. Separation for a believer is not legalism. Now, every verse we're about to look at, it is directed to people who've already made peace with God. It's directed to people who are already saved. They're not trying to get saved. They're not trying to stay saved. They belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And notice this command in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. He says this, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You have to look up for just a moment. You can catch the context. Whoever he's talking to is an unequal yoke from an unbeliever. Well, the inference is he's talking to believers. 
And he's saying to believers, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Great verse. If you're saved, you have no business marrying a lost person. You understand that? Where are you going to build the nest? You're polar opposites. Amen. But it can be applied to legal business partnerships too. Beyond simply a marriage. But notice how he goes on. He said, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Look at the opposite. What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And on he goes, and then he says in verse 17, Wherefore, because you're so opposite, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I want to note here that separation, these are people who are saved, from darkness and unclean things is not legalism. It's a command from God to separate from that stuff. You know, after you got saved, you separated from some things. Y'all with me? I can remember newly saved. I can remember following my salvation. A month or so later, I came up to my Bible teacher, Bill Overway, and I said this to him. You mean to tell me, Brother Bill, that when I go home on leave as a young Marine, I can't have a beer with my brother Doug? I'll never forget Bill's answer. Well, Brother Dave, I wasn't even teaching or preaching on that. (laughs) The Spirit of God put his finger on an unclean thing that I used to participate in Minnesota all the time on Friday night keggers. And the Spirit of God put his finger on that. And the principle of separation began to move into my heart. And nobody had to tell me to do that. Christ in me nudged me that way. Separation for a believer from unclean things is not legalism. Go to 1 Peter and look at this in chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, here's the touch back into 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, look at what's said in verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13. He's speaking to believers. You'll catch it in the next verse here in 1 Peter 1, 13. He says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace is to be brought on us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 13. As, what's that next word? Obedient children. This is interesting to me. Look up. <laughs> he uses an adjective to describe what kind of child he wants now that you're in his family. And if you were always obedient, he wouldn't have to say that. Amen? The inference is you can be disobedient as a child of God. How many of you have children and they're not always obedient? Just raise your hand. Amen? How many of you, when you were a child, wasn't always obedient? Huh? You weren't always obedient. Yeah, yeah. I was voted hardest to raise by my parents. What a great thing to be said about you. And such it is, the day you're saved, you're born again, you enter a heavenly father's household, and he says, now that you're my child, I want you to be an obedient child. And I wrote in my notes, obedience is not legalism. It's a command from the father. And then he describes what it looks like. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, which is how you live, because it is written, and be ye holy, for I am holy. You know tonight, obedience to your new father 
is not legalism. And do you know tonight that holy living is not legalism? Do you, do you understand everything about this family we entered? The family of God reeks of holiness. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, not a wicked spirit. We read the holy scriptures, not the defiled scriptures. We're going to a holy heaven, not a wicked heaven. We belong to a holy father, not an unholy father. Everything about this family reeks of holiness. And the last time I checked, children always want to be like dad. Holy living is not legalism. Holy living is the expectation from your father in heaven in your life. Amen? And then we'll look at one more and we'll move to the next point. In Romans 12, we need to tap this. We're looking at legalism, liberty, and lawlessness. And I'm just, I'm covering this because today there is A, a great misunderstanding. And B, oftentimes uh, there is intentional Uh, um, an intentional tearing down of something that should never be torn down because of an absolute ignorance toward what the word legalism really means. Look at me in Romans 12 and verse number 1. In Romans 12 and verse number 1, the Bible says, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, oh, look at that word, brethren, this is to you if you're saved, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This isn't a positional truth. This is a practical, pinchable, touchable truth. It's your body. Notice what that looks like. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now watch this. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I wrote this down next to Romans 12. Nonconformity to the world is not legalism. It's a command from God. I find this interesting. How many of you have ever poured concrete before? You know, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of this world? It's like a concrete pour. I grew up a farm boy in Minnesota, poured concrete for years. We mixed it by hand. We never called the ready mix truck. But I remember this, and most of you that have poured concrete would understand this. You don't just mix the concrete, say, I want a sidewalk there, and just put it there. No. Before you ever mix the concrete, you have a lot of work ahead of you forming up where you're going to pour it. And what do you do? You, you form it up. You, you, you get the lumber out. You get the stakes out, the rebar, lay everything. You form it up. And then what happens? You pour the concrete in there, and the form holds the concrete in place to allow it to set, or we would say in concrete terms, green up. And there comes a moment at which you can go ahead and kick those forms away, and guess what? That concrete is going to have the shape of the form it was poured into. Amen? Now let's understand something about the world. This world has a form. It wants you to be poured into. You understand? This world has a form. Dad wants your kids poured into. 
You understand this world has a form. We have 14 grandchildren now. This world has a goal. It wants my grandchildren to be conformed to them, to look like them, talk like them, act like them, live like them, and be like them. That is the mold. That's the mold. And there's attitudes this world has they want you to have. Let me illustrate an attitude. I won't say a word and you'll catch it. Here it is. Yeah. Pride. Arrogance. Do you know, God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The way up is down. Amen? But this world says, oh, no. You need to have the attitude of self-sufficiency, self-superiority. Y'all with me? That's an attitude. This world wants to pour you into that attitude mold they have, and they want your kids there, too. They have activity molds they want to pour you into. Could I get an amen there? They have associations. They want you to be just like them and operate with them. Y'all with me? This world has a mold. Wants to pour you into it. Pour your children into it. Pour your family into it. But could I remind you? There's a second mold. Romans 8, 29 says, You and I have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of of Jesus Christ. You know, in your Bible, Christian, you only have two forms, two molds to pick, the world or Christ. Who are you trying to be like? Them or him? And maybe the better question is, why are you so embarrassed of Jesus Christ That you would rather be like the world than him. What about him embarrasses you? Could I say, when you meet your salvation one day, he's going to be more than you thought he was. Amen? You pick your mold. You pick your focus. And who you press yourself closest to will be ultimately who you will act like. The world or Jesus Christ. So I want to say this. Nonconformity to the world is not legalism. And you know, when you stop and just sum this up before I go to the next point, just stop and think. And here's the million dollar question. Whose smile do you want? I mean, really, when you wake up in the morning, whose smile are you looking for? Let me tell you whose smile I was looking for when I was lost. Mine. When I woke up in the morning, it was all about David. It was all about what David wanted to do. And if people said, why do you do what you do? Why do you live the way you live? Because I want to. Because this is who I want to be. This is fun. It was all about me. Now, you take that into your marriage. And that could get a little thin after a bit. Y'all with me? And I begin to learn, you know, if I want a happier marriage... Maybe I need to wake up in the morning and live for her smile instead of mine. Get her to laugh, not me. Try to make that the goal. Some of you are looking at me like you never thought of that before. (laughs) Think about that. It'll help you. Could you imagine if both are actually trying to get the smile from the other person? Get them to smile. And can you imagine what that would be like? Amen? 
But that's still not the highest motivation. The highest motivation is when I wake up in the morning, I want my Heavenly Father's smile on what I'm saying and what I'm doing and what kind of attitude I'm walking around my house with and what kind of spirit and what kind of just every... I want Dad's smile. That's it. And maybe that's what irks me. There's an old word my grandma used to use. Is when people say, well, you're just being a legalist. They profess to know why I do what I do. And none of them, let me just remind you, you don't know the true heart of someone else. You struggle with your own. And if someone says, I just want dad's smile. And I want to be an obedient child. And I want to be pleasing to my father who gave me everything. And I want to be conformed to the image of his son rather than the image of this world. That doesn't make you a legalist. So we have legalism, but then notice liberty. Go back to Galatians 5. The word's right there. Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, for brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but instead by love serve one another. Notice here's liberty. What is liberty? Well, it's defined as such. It's freedom from restraint. There's no law against it. And Galatians 5 notes that in Jesus Christ, you and I have been set free. Amen? We have a freedom in Jesus Christ we never had before. But notice the balance because God knows us. Don't use this new freedom in Jesus Christ, he notes here, as an occasion to the flesh. But instead by love, serve one another. I wrote in the notes You and I were set free from our sin that we may now serve. Write that down. This is the freedom we have. He sets us free from ourselves. He sets us free from our sin. And he sets us free to serve others rather than myself. Notice the ultimate freedom. It's just a few verses later. Look at me, Galatians 5. Notice in verse 16, this I say, then walk in the spirit. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusteth against the spirit. The spirit's against the spirit against the flesh. Now notice he notes these. And I shared this a few years ago. Verse 19, two commodity lists. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Pause. These are the things that your old nature produces and you don't need God's help to produce them. Okay, these are the things you produce on your own and God doesn't need to be a million miles from you. All right, here's the list. It's not pretty. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, made known, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. He nails the sexual sins first. Let's just make it plain. You don't need the Holy Spirit's help and guidance to be a pornographer. Y'all with me? You don't need God helping you to be a pornographer, gentlemen. Y'all with me? You can do that in your strength. God doesn't need to be near you. That's something you can produce all on your own in your strength without Jesus' help. Somebody says, well, those aren't my problems. Well, the list isn't done. Look with me. Idolatry, verse 20. (laughs) Worshiping something more than the true and living God. I'll tell you what. You let me see your bank statement where you spend your money and where you spend your time, I'll tell you who your God is. Because he always gets those too. Witchcraft, hatred, just being hateful. 
You can do that. You don't need God's help with that one. Notice, he says variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions. What's that? Hey, a seditious person is someone who hates authority. Can't stand being told what to do. Whoa, flesh does that one automatically. Amen? Amen? (laughs) Don't leave me hanging up here, all right? Notice he goes on to say this, heresies, rumors, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, the article 134 in the UCMJ. It's the catch-all. Of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's all you are, you have a spiritual problem. You need to run to God and get some help. Amen? But then notice, watch, Verse 22, here's the context. Here's what you've been called to for liberty. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. What does that mean? There's no limit. You're never going to meet your Savior one day. So you know what? You know what my problem with you was? You're just too long-suffering. You're just too gentle, too meek, too kind, too sweet. Really had a problem with that. He said, "There's no limit. There's no no restriction. That is what you've been called unto. You cannot produce those in your strength. Only Jesus Christ in you and you abiding in him produces that kind of fruit. It's the autobahn of Christianity. Unrestricted. But this is what God produces through you when he sets you free from yourself and your sin. Amen? This is the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. Is freedom from the power of sin and works of the flesh to produce fruit of the Spirit. Amen? Legalism, liberty, but I've got to go to the third one, and then I'm going to tie this together in a way you're just never going to forget it. You'll use this for the rest of your life. Lawlessness. The second half of the notes here, if you turn to the backside, that third word, lawlessness, what is that? Well, lawlessness is a state of disorder due to a disregard of the law. Look across America tonight. You see this in most of our major cities. I was in Seattle last year. I was in Portland last year. I want to just say, wow, it is a meltdown situation. Why is there so much lawlessness or why is there so much disorder? Because there's an utter disregard of the law. Go back to Romans 3. I have a theological question for everybody here tonight. I want you to to think about this. But in Romans 3, look with me in verse 28, where we tapped earlier in the message. It says this, Romans 3, 28, Therefore we conclude, Romans 3, 28, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So we know the law doesn't save you. So here's my question. Once you're saved, Christian, once you're saved, do you then make void the law? In other words, the law doesn't save you. The law doesn't justify you. The law doesn't keep you. It's Jesus Christ that does all that. So therefore, do you then disregard the law? That's a yes or no question. So how many of you say, well, you know, now that I'm saved, I know that I'm saved by grace. 
The law didn't save me. The law doesn't justify me. So the law really has no relevance anymore in my life. So I, I just need to focus on Jesus and disregard the law. How many would say that? Oh, okay. How many would say, you know, even though I'm saved by grace, I still need to regard the law? Slip your hand up. Ah, you've been well trained. How many of you would say, you know, I really don't know the answer to that. And rather than look dumb and say the wrong one, I'm just not going to raise my hand at all. All right. There may be some say, I don't know. Well, watch this in verse 31. The answer is given literally three verses later. Do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, if the law didn't save us, but faith did, do we then make void the law through faith? Look at those next two words. Say them out loud with me. God forbid. What does that mean? Well, that's a big N-O. All caps, largest print, bold, exclamation points, and underline 14 times. No! But then watch what he goes on to add. Yea, we establish the law. We double down on the law. Why would that be? Three reasons. Don't have them in your notes, so you'll have to freelance on this one. Three reasons that once you're saved, you do not negate the law. You lift it up. You establish it. You build it up. You do not put it down. Number one, because the law reflects the character of God. Write that down. The law reflects the character of God. Look in Romans 7. Look at how this is said. And There's many verses. I just picked one here. Romans 7, 12. Listen to what's said here. He says, wherefore, Romans 7, 12, the law is, what's that word? Holy. So now that you're saved by grace, why do you still put any focus on the law and lift it up and establish it? Because the law reflects the character of God. God is holy, the law is holy, and our society needs more God, not less of Him. Amen? Number two. Because the law is good, not bad. That's profound. Just write that down, though. Here's the second reason why you do not make void the law of God. Instead, you establish it and double down on it. Because the law is good, not bad. Same verse, Romans 7, 12. Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. How many of you ever had this moment? I've had it. Maybe coming to church, somebody's a little poochy lip. I say, what's up? And here's what I hear. Oh, I got a speeding ticket on my way to church tonight. And then before you can say anything else, they tell you where and how. They say, you know, it's right there when you're coming into town. It goes from 55 and it drops to 35 just like that. And then they say this. And that's just a stupid law. You know what I say to them? No, um, that law isn't stupid. <clears throat> you are for breaking it. Now, it's a bad word to use, but makes the point. Isn't it interesting? Because people have misplaced faith today. They put so much faith in the law to save them. You talk to most people, the balance, more good than bad. God lets me in. They have a misplaced hope for heaven. They place it on the law, not Jesus Christ. Then suddenly the law is bad. No, the misplaced faith is bad. The law is still good. Amen? We're the ones who are bad. 
And the law shows that. Number three, once we're saved, do we make void the law? No, we establish it, number one, because it reflects the character of God. Number two, because the law is good, not bad. But number three, because it shows us our need for Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 24. You don't need to turn there. I'm just giving it to you for sake of time. You can, you can look at this on your own. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3 that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. What does the law do well? It tells us we're guilty, we failed, and we didn't pass the exam on righteousness. Amen? And we are never going to pass this because it requires 100% And none of us has ever done that. And the law says you need to find somebody else to sub in on this test and take it for you. His name is Jesus Christ. I like to say it this way. Don't terminate the teacher. We need her to drive people to Jesus Christ today. Amen? Go to Titus and then we'll go to the third and final, or we'll go to wrap up here. In Titus, look at what's said here. Titus is about, in Titus chapter 2, to describe to us the grace that saves people. This is saving grace and what it looks like. Titus 2, very powerful. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Oh, this grace that saves teaches us. What does it teach us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice the grace that saves doesn't teach you, do you all have a license to live like the devil now that you belong to Jesus? It teaches the exact opposite. It teaches now that he saved you from your sin, and your filthy, wicked self, and set you free to serve, you should deny ungodliness. You should deny worldly lusts. And you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world and look for the return of Jesus Christ. Wow. So, what's the conclusion? Get your pens out. Here we go. Let's do a wrap-up. You'll never forget this wrap-up. It'll help you. You and I were saved and set free to serve. That's why he saved us. We weren't saved to sin. All right? That isn't why he saved you. He didn't save you so you could now sin. He saved you from your sin. Amen? You and I were saved and set free to serve. We were not saved to sin. And a train has the most liberty, most freedom, when it's on the tracks. Those restrictive tracks. Those narrow tracks. Could you imagine if trains could talk? You say, trains don't talk. Well, then you've never read Thomas the Tank Engine, have you? Fourteen grandchildren, I think I have them all memorized. Can you imagine if trains could talk? You got trains run through Kentucky? All right, so we pick a train, here it goes every day. Same route, same tracks, and it begins to see a little pond a quarter mile away, and it begins to say these things, you know. These restrictive tracks. 
I'd like to get over there and see that pond, you know, but I got to always look at it from a distance and, and it's these restrictive tracks. And one day, you know what it does? It says, I'm sick of these restrictive tracks. I'm jumping rails and going over there and it jumps the tracks and heads for the pond. You know, the instant it does that, it loses all of its power. It loses all of its liberty. It loses all of its freedom. It loses all of its joy. It loses all of its productivity. And it becomes nothing but a train wreck. And if it happens to be a dad, he brings all the cars with him. So where's our freedom and liberty now that we're saved? It's on two rails. Rail number one, the truth of God's word. Rail number two, the Holy Spirit of God in me. God's Word, God's Spirit, they work together and they keep me where I need to be so I have the power of Christ in my life for others. A train has the most liberty when it's on the tracks. Is your life on the track of truth? Have you gotten in the Word of God to see how He wants you to live? Where He wants you to go? what He wants you to do, what kind of attitude you should have. Have you looked to see the fruit of the Spirit? That's a great truth. Are you just just wanting to be works of the flesh? That's a warped rail. And have you listened to that still small voice in you who says, yes, when you're in God's Word, this is the way. Or you just want to do your way. Go back to Galatians 5. I wrap it up with two brief illustrations because they'll help you. We're living in a funny day today where you and I oftentimes as God's people are made to, be, uh, to feel embarrassed for wanting to be separated from sin, to want to have some standard of holiness. We're made to feel like we're legalists and we're not. We're just trying to please our Father. We want to be obedient child. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be different. We want to be more like Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get cowed and intimidated. Notice what he says in verse 13. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. My son Kevin called me about year and a half ago or so. He was struggling with somebody in church. He's in a church in the Baltimore area. Somebody in leadership. I know it wasn't his pastor. His pastor's a very sweet individual. I never asked who it was. I didn't care to know. But he was bound up about somebody that had a bad attitude and wasn't being kind about dealing with him. They were in a leadership position of some sort. And I listened and I listened and then I said, son, could I give you a piece of advice that's going to help you tremendously? What's that, dad? I said this. Never allow somebody's bad disposition remove from your heart a good biblical position. All right? I said, never let a bad disposition remove a good position. What do you mean, Dad? I said, son, you don't know everything about your dad, but my message dealing with bitterness came from one of the harshest times in my Christian life. A man in Alaska who was gifted, talented, 
unbelievable. He could start a church from scratch, pioneer missionary. After I left the Marine Corps, I went to serve under him. And he was an amazing guy, but son, he had a, he had a flaw, and his flaw was this. He was incredibly, what's the word? What's that? Insecure. And if you could grow spiritually beyond him, he would do everything in his power to destroy you and move you back to where he was. Some of you say, whoa, I've met someone like that. And son, I'll be quite honest with you. Gifted man, one of the greatest pulpiteers I've ever met, amazing teacher of God's word, all of that. But this was his flaw. And one day his flaw came after me. And by the time he got done with me, I wanted to quit Christianity altogether. I stood on the very brink of I quit. The Spirit of God stopped me and said, where are you going to go, son? And I got that one right, like Peter. Thou hast the words of eternal life. And he moved my gaze back to a Savior who never disappoints. Over two and a half years I struggled, never stopped giving, never stopped going to church, but I never told one person about Jesus. Man, I was hurt. And I said, if I stare at that man too much, had I made him my ultimate focus, I should be in a charismatic church right now, letting the women run the whole shebang and never have another man in my life leading. Sorry if that hurts, but I know what I'm saying. It's truth. But I had to get beyond that man's disposition and say his truths were right when his life was not. Some of you ladies struggle with your man's disposition. His truth is right. His disposition is not. Some of you men with a wife, I don't know. Some of you, but here's the thing you've got to recognize. It even happens in movements. What is the independent Baptist movement? Sorry, soldiers, I'm going to say it. We're the Marine Corps of Christianity. That's who we are. We're warriors. We will be the last ones to give up the hill of truth. We will be the last ones. But we could be the first ones to start a fight you don't need. Could I get a witness there? I'm very real about this. And sometimes what happens is you go through it, you, you get hurt, you get your eyes off Jesus Christ, you begin to focus on all the little things that bother you. Like my, my mentor, Gary Prisk, used to say, it's like old McDonald's farm, you know? Here a flaw, there a flaw, everywhere a flaw, flaw. <laughs> the face of the church is the face of a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. And we watch this new evangelical ship go sailing by in the distance. Oh, man, and they're a party ship. Everybody's happy on that one. And from a distance, it looks so perfect. But could I remind you, every ship has an engine room. Even that ship. And the engine room isn't the pretty room. Y'all with me? It's hot. It stinks. There's grease. It's not the cleanest place, you know. It's a get-or-done room, but, yeah, yeah, you know, the engine room's just a nasty place. 
And I want to remind every our, one of our teenagers tonight, every young person in your home, your home has an engine room. Could be dad's temper. Could be mom's insubordination to leadership and her rebellious spirit. I don't know. But every single home has an engine room of some sort. And it's not the prettiest room. And sometimes you say, you know what? I'm bailing on all this and I'm going to go out to the world because that's the happy place. That one's got an engine room too. Amen. And so does that new evangelical movement. I don't have time to illustrate. Once you board her ship, she's got an engine room too. You see, what you want to never do is overcorrect when the challenges come. Minnesota grew up a farm boy, would borrow dad's family car. Twin brother Doug and I would get in that thing and off to town we would go. And we start spinning donies and impressing the girls, doing what teenage boys do with dad's car. We always were careful not to hit something, but sometimes on the way home we'd be high-fiving, we'd be laughing about what we did, and we'd get a little too close to one side, right? And all of a sudden, and don't go put this in the ditch, into the other ditch. I'd hit the ditch, and Doug would look at me and go, way to go, Davey. Yeah, Duggers, I know. Back then, when you hit the ditch, you had to call Dad to get help. You didn't have a smartphone. You didn't even have a flip phone, dumb phone. You walked to the neighbor's house and got on the party line and rotary dialed. Dad would answer the phone. I hated those calls. Hey, Dad. Yeah, Dave, what's up? Uh, I put the car in the ditch. You know, there's one question my dad never asked me at that moment. He never asked me, which ditch? He didn't care which ditch. He didn't care if it was the right ditch. And he didn't care if it was the left or opposite from your perspective. He just knew it's supposed to stay on the road. Amen? And I've met people that say, you know what? I'm no longer over in that right ditch standing for truth with no spirit. I'm just all spirit with very little truth. And... I am in a better ditch. This is profound, but you need to hear it. It's still a ditch. Your ditch isn't better than their ditch. Y'all with me? You and I speak the truth in love. We can control that. Right? And their spirit and truth. Brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but instead by love serve one another. Stay on the rails of truth. Amen? Listen to the voice of God who's there if you're saved. He guides you into all truth. And recognize your freedom in Jesus Christ is not to sin, to live a rebellious life or do what you want to do, your freedom in Jesus Christ is now to serve others rather than yourself. You've been called unto liberty. Stay out of the ditches. Stay on the tracks of truth and the Spirit of God. There's your power and liberty.
in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Father, we thank you tonight for this thought. And Lord, as we bow our hearts before you,